Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello there. I'm uh, Oscar Iwelos, author of Thoughts Without Cigarettes. It's a memoir about, I guess, the way I grew up in New York City to uh, Cuban parents, my struggles with uh, identity issues, which started because of an illness I once had as a, as a kid, which put me in the hospital for a year. And so I came out somewhat uh, fragmented being, alienated uh, from my own heritage. So in a sense, Thoughts Without Cigarettes is a story of a search for oneself. I'm going to read from a chapter called My Two Selves, which sort of describes where I was at at about the age of 17 or 18. My Two Selves. In those years, I seemed to have vacillated between two versions of myself. One was musical and hip, somewhat sly and occasionally wild. The other so completely solemn and conservative of demeanor as to be taken by Greenwich Village hippies as too straight-laced to trust. When I cut my hair short, I was sometimes looked upon suspiciously by the bohemian sect as if I might be a cop. I suppose it had something to do with my overly preoccupied expression. The hip Iwelo smoked cigarettes and liked to get high. Like black folks who I never saw using any other brand, I preferred cools, maybe a pack or two a night, not giving a damn about health issues. I was convinced, however, stupidly, that by the time I had smoked long enough to come down with cancer, they, the scientific world, would have developed a cure for it. The other Iwelo's dispensive shit who looked down on others' self-indulgences and worried about his health tended towards weight-induced high blood pressure and remained, despite the unpredictability of his mother's moods, complacently disposed towards her. See, Mama. One did whatever the fuck he felt like doing, lived here and there, made out with the occasional girl, while the other demurely slipped into deep depressions, all the while craving not the escape of sex or drugs, but eso de la comida, Cuban food especially, and the mental comfort foods of comic books and horror movies. That cooler version of myself trudged off one night through Central Park with the guitarist Dwayne Allman in search of a liquor store and later jammed with him in an uptown pad, while the other, completely insecure, but having pretensions of musical grandeur, once boasted to his older brother that he had written the lyrics of a Beatles song called When I'm 64. How on earth I thought I could get away with that is beyond me. I guess I believe they didn't have radios in Brooklyn. During that time, the strangeness of my life, a feeling that something had been torn out from inside of me, like a kidney, curiously enough, in my mind shaped like the island of Cuba, that I was as empty as air gnawed at me every day, 
The same questions I had about myself kept repeating, who and what am I? Why is it that I hate seeing what I see when I look in a mirror? Why is it that every now and then I suddenly turn around because of a voice saying, Cuba, Cuba? And why is it that I always swear, as I begin to look behind me or turn a corner, that, in a moment, I will come upon all that I do not have, a world, perhaps Cuban, perhaps familial, that for so many reasons seemed to have been taken from me. I tried to be a hippie for a while, but even that did not really offer me a refuge. I'm sorry to say I wasn't very good at it. One summer, I had gone upstate, north of Saratoga Springs, to perform with a pianist friend in a makeshift band at a guitar player's wedding. I knew the bridegroom from jam sessions around Columbia, and two-timing my own band, for a while I moonlighted with him in a group we put together, the Ravens. He dressed entirely in black, wore dark glasses every hour of the day, had dark hair down to his shoulders, and altogether cultivated a look that present-day kids would call goth. His old lady, a waitress at the Gold Rail, was all of 22 or so at the time, and a long-legged, auburn-haired fox and a half, as they'd say in the neighborhood. Their marriage, held on the shores of an upstate lake, went off with flower child aplomb, and the party afterward, with folks coming from nearby communes as well as the city, became one of those all-day affairs with musicians setting up their amps on a makeshift stage in a field and people lying out on blankets or wading naked in the water, partaking liberally of the booze and marijuana and other relaxants that were in plentiful supply, along with tables of food of a typical American variety with some healthfully boring grain and oat dishes. I played guitar with that impromptu troupe of musicians for a few hours until the mosquitoes and black flies and the heat began to get to me and figuring that I'd paid my dues, left to check out the shoreside scene. What with a large number of lovely young women cavorting about in the flesh, along with something else of great interest just then taking place. On a small island some fifty yards into the lake, a couple were going at it with abandon. A woman, her shapely back to us, long hair trailing down her shoulders, straddling some lucky fellow grinding her hips over him, and most juicily so. A lot of people were watching, among them the bridegroom himself, my friend, whom I sat beside and joined in a smoke, just a cigarette. Passing some jug wine between us, we took in their lovemaking, watched the woman, her bottom rising and falling, her head turning from side to side, while we said things like, Man, oh man, and where'd she come from? our interest further heightening when, dismounting him, she rolled over and let the fellow go down on her. The two of us shaking our heads in wonderment and blowing out smoke rings, while she not long afterward turned her mouth into a ring and started blowing him. Oh, that lucky fellow. It would have remained one of those capricious things that, I supposed, happened at hippie weddings. What would free love in the air? an afternoon's drug-induced sexual reverie, if not for the fact, as we soon discovered, that the woman in question 
having had her fill of that fellow's masculinity and wading back to shore wobblingly so, turned out to be my friend's bride. His response shook his head, sucked his cigarette deeply, and, with considerable understatement, told me, Oh, man, what a drag. Somehow he had it in him to forgive her. His bride of only a few hours had gotten so drunk that she soon passed out and in any case wouldn't remember a thing about what had happened, while the lucky fellow, who I'm happy to report, was a good-looking Latino. And yes, I was a little envious of his swarthy, well-muscled handsomeness, swaggered about with his plump dick hanging out for all to see until he learned just who the lady happened to be, and putting on a pair of trousers, duly apologized to the bridegroom. He was so humble as to be likable, and that paid off when later, even more enviously, I watched him going off with another woman. I ended up passing the night rather uncomfortably, inside a low-hanging tent pitched in a field, swatting away at mosquitoes and unable to sleep, not just because of the heat, but because I often had those awful dreams. That same summer, I was at home one August evening trying to watch television while my mother, sitting on the couch behind me, went on and on in Spanish about the fact that my life would end up a useless mess. It didn't matter to me. By then, I did whatever I pleased in front of her. Smoking openly, I dropped my ashes into the same standing tray that my father used to. You'll kill yourself with those cigarettes, like your father, she'd scream. And now and then I'd stretch out in his green recliner, having oddly pleasant memories of him, like when I was little and he'd make a muscle and let me feel it, or my pop in from the wintry day, setting his snow-dappled black-brimmed hat on the kitchen table and rubbing his hands happily to warm them up and patting me on the head, and how he used to somehow have a calming effect on babies who always stopped their bawling around him. Such nice memories kept coming to me until, in that reclining position, I'd remember him stretched out in his coffin, and whatever nostalgia I may have been feeling for those earlier times turned into a kind of muted despair, which, of course, I had gotten used to by then. On that night, I was watching an episode of Bewitched, or perhaps I Dream of Genie, a cheery sitcom in any case, when the telephone rang. My mother answered it, called me over. Es pati, she said. It was Mr. Massetti calling me from his bar. Hey, Oscar, he said, can you do me a favor? What sort of favor, I asked him. Well, it seems that my son Butch has got it into his head that he wants to take a morning flight out of Kennedy to Denver. Yeah, so? The thing is that he's, hmm, how can I put it to you? He's been kind of high as a kite lately, if you know what I mean. He's been dropping a lot of something on the strong side. You following me? Uh-huh. The thing is, I don't want to go in alone with his mind so whacked, capiche? And, and I was wondering if you could do me the very big favor of looking out for him, for me. There's two bills in it for your trouble. You mean you want me to go out with him to Colorado? Yes, sir. I'm only asking because I trust you. Just make sure he doesn't do anything crazy. That's all. Okay, I'll do it, I finally told him, not having much else going on. The next morning, Mr. Massetti drove us to JFK in his Cadillac, 
got us there around 9 a.m., paid for our tickets at the counter, and then wishing me well with a slap to my back, took off for Manhattan. We had to wait about an hour before boarding, a very long hour. Having been high all night, on speed and LSD perhaps, who knew, Butch Massetti had signed on for the duration. Somewhere in outer space, Butch kept pointing his finger at me and laughing wildly, going on about how the interior of the terminal had begun to glow like gold before melting like ice all around him. He'd make whooshing noises with his mouth and scoot around in circles, his hands held out like Superman's flying, babbling incoherently about the cosmic winds in that place. Not wanting any hassles, I kept bringing him back to his seat. Be cool, I'd say, only to watch him get up again. The airline staff, mostly young female flight attendants, must have noticed his strange behavior, but I think they were either inured to such doings or simply didn't care enough to boot us off that flight. Finally, we started boarding. I thank God for that, because he seemed to quiet down. I took it in stride. When I left the house that morning, my mother had been confounded. I had been stupid enough to tell her where and with whom I was going. Her last words to me as I left were, Are you crazy? For even she knew about Butch's reputation for liking the wild side of things. Well, I was doing it for $200, and because Larry and Butch were my friends, in that order. Unlike his two lovely sisters, Butch always had a smugness about him, and, as kids, our fights always started out with his making some blunt remark about how I dressed in cheap clothes, or how my moms couldn't speak English too well, or how he never liked going into my apartment because it smelled funny. The thing is, no matter how friendly I tried to be with him, he hadn't changed one bit. But even if I looked at it as a job, I still couldn't understand how anyone could take a huge dose of LSD and decide to get on a jet plane the next day. Eventually, of course, I'd find out why. Butch had already dropped the drug at the bar when, out of some idiocy, he decided to call his on-and-off girlfriend, a girl named Ellie in Colorado Springs where he attended college. She had apparently dumped him that very night hence his sudden decision to fly there, though I couldn't imagine anyone, high or not, going through the trouble just because of a telephone call. Once the plane had become airborne, however, Butch seemed to become more contemplative, hardly saying a word, coming down from his high, which was fine with me. To calm my own nerves, I ordered a few glasses of vodka and orange juice from a stewardess, which I sipped slowly until I began to doze off. Then I had a very strange dream. First, the wispy threads I always saw inside the rims of my eyes, floaters, seemed to become extravagantly beautiful, curling into arabesque flows of script that implied, without using any language, something awfully profound and mystical. And then after feeling completely fascinated by some melodies that I had started to make up in my head, it all hit me. Lurching forward, I opened my eyes to a cabin that had begun bursting with florid colors and seemed padded with an expanding, nearly breathing foam. Looking my way, gleefully and pointing his index finger at me, Butch could not contain himself, laughing. 
Gotcha, sport. A general note: I would not recommend flying anywhere with someone who, out of a controlling motive, would slip into your drink a drug like LSD. I can assure you that a jet plane reeking of fuel, carpet cleaning chemicals, recycled oxygen, bodily gases, perfumes and colognes, airplane food, and in those days of yore, cigarette smoke. Which even for a smoker on that drug smells and tastes exactly like all its ghastly chemical components, from benzene to formaldehyde, is about the least pleasant place on earth to be, and it hits you that you are locked inside an unimaginably heavy metallic projectile flying through the air, somehow held up in the sky, in that contained, inescapable, and claustrophobic space. I got the jitters so badly that I made it a ritual to go to the toilet every ten minutes or however much time to wash my face and urinate. Though at a certain point, with Butch really getting on my nerves, I locked myself inside for so long the flight attendants began knocking on the door to make sure I was all right. I wasn't, and they knew it. From our blabbering and distorted expressions and strange reactions to simple questions. As when a flight attendant would offer a meal and I'd answer incredulously, "Why?" Later, when we'd finally landed, one of them, a chirpy Southern sort, remarked, "It's not every day we get passengers like you." I suppose this all leads to a certain moment, sitting out in the field in Colorado Springs, perhaps that same evening of the day of our arrival, and still feeling the effects of that drug. Watching the Pleiades meteor showers with Butch's ex-paramour Ellie by my side, I am not sure if that wonderful evening really took place a few days after we arrived. But she, who, as it happens, had also been sick as a child, a very bad heart, warmed to me almost immediately. I am not sure which Iwelo showed up, or to which side of me she was attracted. But we spent our nights for the next few weeks together, much to Butch's exasperation. He and I were never the same sort of friends again after that. What I do remember about her is this: she had long hair, wore wire-rimmed glasses, had a plain Danish milkmaid's face, had a thin, not full body, had a father who ran Rocky Mountain Bell. Had some poetic aspirations, and had a former boyfriend who had taken his own life after she had rejected him. Think she cried in my arms after telling me that tale. Her favorite musical was Camelot. Her favorite group, unfortunately, the Eagles. And whatever she once had with Butch had lasted only for a few days, if that. And even then, I don't know if they ever made it. He had the kind of personality that was very hard to get next to. No startling beauty. She had a way of being that really touched me, and left me aching over the notion of having to leave her. I had, after all, re-upped for school in the fall, Lehman College at night. Parting from each other turned out to be harder than either of us had expected. Though Butch, despite having had to put up with the torture of seeing her with someone I think he secretly or not so secretly looked down on me, seemed almost mirthful over the thought of her suffering. It really didn't matter. I never saw her again, and if the truth be told, once again I am at a loss for coming up with a happy ending to yet another one of my tales.
We wrote each other for a few years, then that stopped, and I really didn't know anything more about her until about a decade later, when Butch told me, as he tended bar in his father's place, that Ellie, for whatever reasons, had committed suicide, and as casually, with a smirk on his face, in fact, as if he were reporting a baseball score. Sometime thereafter, Butch himself died in a car wreck, hitting an overpass on the Jersey Turnpike while driving his father's Cadillac at over 100 miles an hour, possibly, as neighborhood gossip speculated, on LSD. That news was broadcast widely, incidentally, on both radio and TV because among his passengers was one of his former classmates at Colorado, Frank Gifford's son, Kyle, who was badly injured. On the other hand, despite my occasional sorry attempt at fitting in with the hippies, all of 22, I passed a year working in one of the more incredibly sophisticated literature-nurturing jobs of all time as a sales clerk at Macy's department store. It was actually far better than it sounds, though the pace stank and the store had been going through a decline in those days. I have no idea why I turned up in their second-floor employment office one morning, but I do recall telling the interviewer that I had an aunt, Maya, who had once worked for them in the 1940s, and I suppose that gave me a slight edge. I must have seemed respectable enough, having cut my hair short for my job hunt, and going to college at night also didn't hurt my chances, and so they hired me. I've since looked back, dreaming about writing the great department store novel, though composing anything else but songs wouldn't have occurred to me back then. My on-the-job training, which came down to learning about send-and-take orders and the working of an archaic cash register, lasted for a few weeks, if that, whereupon my floor manager, a certain tall Enrico Sicilian Mr. Trampani, whom I rather liked, put me to work selling curtain rods and window shades, among other household items. I also had a stint up on the seventh floor selling trendy new items like anti-gravity pens and neon dial clocks for a department they named Design 7, where, wearing a blue frock one afternoon, I had the embarrassment of encountering some of my Brandeis hippie schoolmates who thought finding me in such a straight-laced job the funniest thing in the world. Then, too, I occasionally worked as a flyer, filling in at different departments, shoes, electronics, furniture a fun rotation since it broke the monotony and repetitious nature of those days, and most spectacularly so during the holiday season, when whatever low morale plagued the employees vanished in the overwhelmingly magical onslaught of Christmas cheer, as the mostly gay display window staff went crazy decorating the store. That old-time movie, Miracle on 34th Street, which is set in Macy's, inevitably came into all of our heads. You couldn't avoid it. In the employee's dining room on the ninth floor, stills from it hung on the walls, and a pianist wearing a Santa Claus cap played carols on an upright set off in the corner next to a little tree. In such an ambiance, I couldn't help but daydream about meeting Edmund Gwens, Chris Kringle, in the corridors. Also... If you ever wonder where those sidewalk Santas ringing their bells and going ho, ho, ho for the Salvation Army come from, in those days at least, you would have only had to look in the Macy's basement employees' locker rooms where some 20 or so of those volunteers 
gathered to get into costume in the mornings. Actually, I never really had much to complain about working there, and I did a good enough job being fluent not in Spanish but in numbers. Mr. Trampani thought enough of my performance to actually tell me one afternoon, I've had my eye on you for some time, young man, as if delivering a line from a movie, and went on to offer me the opportunity to study at the company's expense at their management training school in, of all places, Denver, Colorado. According to him, I would have a wonderful future in retail if I wanted one. But even back then, while I really appreciated the fact that he was looking out for me, I couldn't see myself committing to anything for long. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.